uh, go for launch. Five. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Four. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. This whole thing is insane. Three. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Where's the kaboom? Two. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. One. that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices, to be found only in the minds of men. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. I believe you're going my way. My name is Talkie Tina. And you'd better be nice to me. Room for one more, honey. <laughs> Mr. Chambers, don't get on that ship. Rest of the book. To serve men, it, it's a cookbook. There's a man out there. What? Look, look, he's crawling on... Your caricatures. All of you. Without your masks. Your caricatures. Just that... Just that what? You wished them away into the cornfield. The mommy and daddy were real upset. About what? It's just that if, if you wish people away like that, uh, there won't be no one left. No moral, no message, no prophetic tract. Just a simple statement of fact. For civilization to survive, the human race has to remain civilized. <laughs> Greetings, my fellow galactic travelers, and welcome back to Planet 8. This is your mission commander, Larry, speaking to you from our hidden base. Chief Engineer Bob is here by my side, as always, in the command center, and circling Planet 8 in our orbital spy satellite is Reconnaissance Officer Karen. Witness on this episode of Planet 8, three friends come together to talk about a program or... Are they actually in the Twilight Zone? That's right. This episode of Planet 8, we're going into the Twilight Zone. Each of us had a list of episodes that we came up with. We'll talk about the Twilight Zone uh, overall, but um, there were just certain episodes that we felt were kind of special uh, to us. So... Um, we're not going to be able to cover every single episode in the five seasons. There was over 150, believe it or not, uh, episodes. Oh, let's go for it. Five seasons. We do like an eight-hour podcast our, uh, today. We had a two-and-a-half-hour episode. Let's go for a you know 15-hour episode. Why not, <laughs> oh, right? Yeah, I, I think that would be a, 
we got nowhere to go. You know, it's quarantine. We might as well just sit here. Well, uh, see, there, there you go. It's, it's part of that episode. But um, we're glad you guys are back with us. Um, what we're going to do, we're going to go ahead and kick it up to Karen up on the satellite. Karen, take it away. Well, thanks, Larry. Um, yeah, I mean, Twilight Zone has been such a legendary series, right? It's so pervasive. It's influenced oh, yeah. so many things. So um, I, I think, obviously, you know, we've been talking about it while we've been preparing for the episode. And, you know, we're probably going to have to do some more episodes because there's just so much to say about it. But, uh, you know, looking into this, um, looking into Rod Serling, uh, such an interesting guy. Um, you know, he obviously, you think of Twilight Zone, you think of Rod Serling, him introducing the episodes and standing there. What I found was really interesting, um, too, going back and looking at these, I was watching them on Netflix. And every time the episode would enter, uh, start, they'd have this little thing flash up in the corner and it would say, warning, fear smoking. Because <laughs> he's always like, yeah. smoking every time he comes on screen, right? You just can't like picture him without like a cigarette in his hand. Um, but it was funny, uh, you know. He was uh, from born in New York in 1924. Um, when he was a young man, they said he was sort of a class clown. Uh, mm-hmm. His teachers kind of directed his energy towards you know writing, and that's what he got into. He did enlist uh, in the army. In 43, uh, he was a small guy. He was like five foot four, but he still managed to become a paratrooper. And uh, wow. was, yeah, uh, and he was sent to the Philippines uh, in the, the towards the end of World War II. He earned a Purple Heart and a Bronze Star. Um, his daughter said that he always suffered from PTSD, um, and that really influenced his writing. And you can kind of see it in a lot of the episodes in um, Twilight Zone. There are a few that took place in. World War II or after people right, who were kind of right. suffering with the effects of the war. And um, not just World War II, but I mean, there were episodes in the Civil War and World War right. One and mm-hmm. you know, other mm-hmm. battles. So it obviously had, you know, the effects of war and what happened after war were, you know, important with him. Um, and, you know, he wanted to talk about social issues, I think, in the same way sort of Gene Roddenberry did. And science fiction was a great way to do it. And there was a quote I saw from him that I thought was really good, um, where he said, a Martian can say things a Republican or a Democrat can't. I love that. <laughs> and I think, you know, in a like, way that kind of sums up a lot of what we saw on the Twilight Zone, um, where, you know, he looked at things like uh, prejudice and, and man's kind of baser nature, but he could do it from an angle outside of modern you know what was actually going on right now mm-hmm. yeah i think a lot of science fiction does that anyway just because sure you know you can do it without overtly doing it yeah um you know one of the things that really sticks out to me in watching these is it didn't matter if the episode took place in a parallel universe or you know down in the bronx or in a um, thrift shop. Uh, it, it could have happened in the uh, war. It could have happened on another planet. There are just certain, like uh, Karen had said, the basics of humanity, whether it's love, hate, 
revenge, sacrifice, um, that, I mean, it was one of the better television series. And Bob said earlier when we were talking off mic, that's why it's still around. That's why it's still popular. Uh, Even to this day, people have tried to duplicate and imitate it, but it's never as good as the original. Yeah, in my humble opinion. Well, yeah, and you know, it's the same sort of thing. People talk about like, why does Shakespeare stand the test of time? Well, they're talking about you know basic things of human nature, right? You know, love and revenge, and uh, you know, trauma that just appeals throughout time. So I think that's the same thing with Twilight Zone. I mean, it's often imitated, but you know, I, and also there's something about that. Like black and white film, yeah, yeah. it's just so stark. Um, it's so dramatic, right? True. And I think you know they they strayed from this a bit later in the series, but I thought a half hour was perfect. Yeah. To get the point across, do the story, end it. I know there was a point, and I think it was season four, where mm-hmm. CBS had canceled another TV show and move Twilight Zone into its place. Well, this other TV show was an hour long, so for that season, Twilight Zone became an hour long. And it seemed kind of padded, and you know they, they were obviously stretching to fill that hour. But uh, I think, you know, overall, though, the other seasons, the half-hour format was, was perfect. Yeah. Right. I also got a kick out of all the different actors that... Um, you know, and, and you have to forgive me. I don't remember all their names, but I remember the characters. Uh, Sergeant Carter, uh, he was in an episode, the the one with the, uh, not the mannequin, the ventriloquist. And it's the uh, mm-hmm. the doll that's actually the, the brains and the stronger person in the act. Um, he was like the booking agent. Um, mm-hmm. Bewitched. What was Larry's? Uh, Larry Tate? Oh. Oh, yeah, he was in the body. Fantastic. I think I I, I sing the body electric. I just saw that the other night. Yeah. as the dad and they bring in the robot grandmother. Yeah. Yeah. It was cool. I was going to say it's cool to see them playing against these like iconic roles that they've established for themselves later in their career. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, speaking of Bewitched, I mean, Dick York was in an episode as well. Where he suddenly he was. was able to read other people's thoughts and hear what they were thinking, and that mm-hmm. re- led to uh, quite a few adventures in the half hour. And it's interesting to see some of these people play against type, I guess. When we, you know, what we expect of type. Again, I and I, I should have looked this up before the podcast, but you remember from Andy uh, Griffith's show Goober. It was like Gomer, Gomer's cousin. Oh, yeah. And, and real, he was a real nice guy and everything. There's an episode I watched uh, earlier in the week of Twilight Zone where they were going to execute this guy. It was set in the South. They were going to execute this guy. And uh, the sun would not rise over the town. The town stayed dark because, it, you know, the town was full of hate and everything. And the guy who played Goober played a deputy sheriff. And he was so full of... Uh, uh, just ugliness. He was so mm-hmm. awful and such an awful person. It was so strange to see him play a character like that. Right, you know? right, exactly. Yeah, um, and yeah, and there were so many like young actors. I saw another really good episode um, 
with Dean Stockwell, who I mostly knew from Quantum Leap, uh, but he was so young in this episode. He was probably in his 20s, and he was playing a, an army lieutenant. And, uh, yeah, it was just – it's so funny to see these people right really early in their careers um, when we right. mostly know them from later in life. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we, we were uh, even talking – Robert Redford. Yeah, we were even talking about that one episode. Going back to Bewitched again, um, Elizabeth Montgomery played opposite mm-hmm. uh, Charles Bronson in an episode mm-hmm. right. which was really good yeah like civil war and they're stuck in the cabin together and yeah and the uh, yeah and the robert redford one too yeah. where he's death yeah it was uh it was a good acting uh good acting gig for him early in his career carol burnett was in an episode i saw the other night oh i, I haven't seen that one or i don't remember that one yeah, she's like a, a dancer, and uh, God, I can't think of the actor's name. He's a well-established actor, and he's like her uh, guardian angel, or he gets assigned to be her guardian angel. And basically, he tries to give her everything that he thinks she wanted, money, fame, cars, and she just wanted to be herself, even though it was a struggle to pay the rent, even though you know she wasn't the best performer, and so he realizes that that's her dream and, and, you know, works with her. And then he gets his wings at the end of the at the end of the show. Yeah, no, definitely a lot of cool episodes. Do you actually know the episode, the one episode that was not specifically shot for the Twilight Zone? Oh, I, it was a short French film, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. The Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Mm-hmm. A short right. French film that... Uh, Sterling really liked, so he got the rights to it, and he basically, you know, recorded his intro and outro to it. In fact, I think in the intro, he even mentions that it's a, a short, you know, French film or whatever. He doesn't, he doesn't like totally try to pass it off as this is the Twilight Zone, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it fits right in with all the other episodes. It's just uh, not a specific Twilight Zone episode. And there were some no. episodes that wound up on video, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there was a season, was I think it was like or second six. or third season, where uh, they were trying to basically cut the budget. So they decided that the show should shoot on video instead of film. Well, what happened there was because it was on video, the equipment was too big to pack around. So they couldn't go out on location. Everything was shot on studio sets using like a live switch between four cameras. And it's just, it was so limiting that uh, Rod Sterling basically lobbied to have it back onto film by the next season. Mm. But there is one season where if you watch the episodes, they look like an old 60s soap opera where it's like yeah, very, <laughs> very sharp image, you know, not a lot of contrast in the lighting, you know, a very video look. But... I mean, now practically everything's shot on video, but back then, you know, that was the, f- the early days of video and it wasn't quite to the quality that it is today. So right. you can definitely notice a difference a between... Dark Shadows kind of feel to it. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking Dark Shadows. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, so if you're familiar with that program, that's kind of what they looked like. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, that, that lasted, I think, for, for one season. Yeah, thankfully. Well, look, um, why don't we get into our discussion? Um, 
uh, who wants to go first rather than me picking? Does anyone want to start it off? <laughs> Tom, I'll, I'll jump in. Okay. Because I think I have one of the cooler episodes to jump in with. <laughs> and that would be The Howling Man. That is a good episode. And uh, yeah, it's like uh, during World War One, and David Elliott is on a walking trip through Europe and he gets lost. So he finds his way to a castle where there's a, uh, a band of monks basically there called the Brothers. And he asks to go into the house. Uh, the main brother that answers the door tells him that they can't take him in, you know, and not allowed to bring people in. He finally talks his way in and, uh, and the guy has to go to, was it Brother Jerome? The, mm-hmm. who's the main yeah. guy, who's actually played by John Carradine. So that was very cool uh, Yeah, he casting. looks like he's just walked out of Ten Commandments. <laughs> yeah. So while he's uh, waiting for the, the guy to go and talk to John Carradine, or Brother Jerome, uh, he hears a howling from behind one of the doors. Ooh! Oh, he finds out that uh, there's a prisoner in, in one of the rooms. And so he uh, goes and talks to him, and of course the prisoner tells him his side of the story which is not necessarily the truth and so uh, basically brother Jerome figures it's best to tell him what's going on and basically tells him that the prisoner is the devil himself and that he's held in place by the staff of life which brother Jerome I don't know where they never say where brother Jerome got the staff of life but it sounds like a pretty powerful thing if it's able to hold the devil in place. Got it from but the I, Almighty. Yeah. So, you know, Brother Jerome, he used it to capture the devil like five years earlier and he's had him locked in this room. So, uh, basically, Elling tends to believe him, though he really doesn't. I mean, who's going to believe it's the devil, right? So he waits until the guard at the door falls asleep and he goes to the room. He finds the door. The staff is on the door, but there's like a little hole, you know, in the door that they can communicate. And obviously this guy could just reach over and grab the staff, pull it out. But uh, he hasn't, which is kind of questionable. So anyway, he finally uh, is convinced to pull the staff of life off the door and he releases the prisoner who basically pins him to the floor with just a gesture. And it's kind of a cool effect because as he walks... Yeah. Away from the room and towards the main door to freedom. Every step, he basically he grows horns and he gets the eyebrows. And he he look he looks more like the devil with every step mm-hmm. until he finally disappears in a puff of smoke. And then we cut to the 1960s with an older Elliot there, and he's uh, talking to a maid and telling her the whole story. And then he tells her finally that uh, he's been hunting the devil ever since, you know, all the way through World War II and the Korean War and everything, and finally found him and had him in a closet in a hotel held in place by the staff. And uh, he basically tells the maid that he has to go to make arrangements to transport the devil back to Father Jerome, or Brother Jerome, and do not, whatever you do, do not, Open that door. Do not remove the staff. So, of course, as soon as he leaves, she hears howling behind the door. And, well, you know what happens next. She just, curiosity gets the best of her. And she goes and removes the staff. And he's free again. But uh, 
I thought it was just a great episode. Just uh, the acting is really good and the, the atmosphere and just the the howling, the chilling howling from behind the door in that uh, great episode. Yeah, there are certain sound bites in, in a couple of two or three episodes that you, you hear them and, and you know what episode it's from and the howling man, that howl is definitely one of them. Um, I had read something where they were going back and forth on what kind of a howl should they use. And, you know, um, the censors didn't want it to be too scary, but, you know, yet they want it to be representative of, you know, the devil suffering in a cell. So ultimately they came up with some guy, oh, <laughs> which works. I, I, I think it's a it's a kind of a haunting. Uh, oh, it definitely is. Definitely chilling sound. Yeah, and and the the transition of the devil at the end it reminds me of those books you would flip through and see like White <laughs> chasing the uh, Road Runner. Well, that's the whole payoff, right? I mean, that's the whole thing that makes it really memorable is how they do the transition as he walks past the columns. Right. And I now I'd kind of like to go back and see like, oh, who was the makeup artist on that? Um, but yeah, it's interesting because each each time he walks past, you know, it's like. I forget. He gets like, I don't know, the pointed ears, the horns, you know, it's all the nose, something. Yeah. each And I think he, his, yeah, I was going to say his cape changes. And so he gets more that kind of regal demonic look until he's standing on the uh, uh, little, uh, it's not a patio or whatever, but it's sort of like overlooking uh, the little town below. And then the puff of smoke appears and he, then he's gone and, yeah, it's uh, it's it's very memorable. Even if you don't remember all the details of the episode, that part is always like, oh yeah, I remember that episode, and the devil is walking and disappears and everything. So yeah, that's uh, uh, definitely visual, visually visually uh, you know captivating. Definitely. And, you know, as far as Twilight Zone episodes, you know, each episode kind of had a, a tale, be it cautionary or otherwise. And this was kind of, I don't want to say fun, but it was an interesting way to explain how we transitioned from World War One to World War Two to Korea to Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and why there was like a given period of peace, you know, someone locked up <laughs> all the hate and evil that the devil represents. Yeah, we had five years of peace until uh, Elliot just basically uh, let him loose. Right. And then you have to figure it was World War One, and then he didn't catch him until like 1960. So there was a whole lot of havoc that he wrecked between World War One and <laughs> oh yeah and 60, 61 or whatever. Well, I I, uh, I, I think I'm going to start with my downer episode. I don't want to end with it. Um, and again, this is one of those episodes where there's a sound bite in it that just, um, you know, how sometimes you get a song in your head and you just think about, you know, that song all day. I'll think about uh, the boss in uh, the episode of Stop at Willoughby. And uh, this this gentleman works for this ad agency and his boss is like, push, 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 yeah. push, push, push. <laughs> And, you know, especially when I have a deadline at work and I'm like, ah, oh, I really can't. And then I push, 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 Keikos. Push, push, push. <laughs> and then I take the train home and I'm waiting for the conductor. Willoughby. Willoughby. <laughs> of course, I don't want to jump off at the Willoughby station. So the guy 
he commutes back and forth to work on the train and um, he doesn't realize if he's dreaming or not, but he, he hears the conductor calling, let's stop for Willoughby. Next stop is Willoughby. And the guy's like, where's, what, what happened to my stop? You know, Central Station or whatever the stop was. And the guy's like, oh, no stop like that, sir. Next stop is Willoughby. And, he never you know, gets an answer either. It's like, where is Willoughby? <laughs> it's out there. Well, yeah. <laughs> it stops at Willoughby and he's so tempted to get off the train because it's like an old town with the, the uh, bandstand in the middle of the park and all these people are just happy and kids playing and riding bikes and the birds singing and it's so peaceful and, and then he's woken up and it's like oh you know Mr. Sullins oh you're stopped here you don't want to miss it oh okay thank you and he, he's just kind of haunted by that vision of, of that town Willoughby goes back to work his boss is upset because one of the junior partners left the firm and took business with him. Um, he was a madman. If you ever watched the program, yeah. Madman, he was in advertising. So push, 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 push. And he finally, he, he has enough. He tells his boss to go pound salt. And the boss is like, oh, you know, oh, what, what? <laughs> so he, uh, he gets back on the train. And Willoughby, Willoughby, it might have happened like two or three times. Turns out the guy commits suicide by jumping off the train between his stop and, and, you know, where he got on. And, um, the, uh, the conductor's like, yeah, he kept on saying something about Willoughby. Uh, and the hearse drives up to pick up, you know, the remains and it's Willoughby and son's mortuary. And then that's the ending of the twilight zone. Da, 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 da. Well, yeah, he's, he, yeah, he has the executive salesperson job from hell. And push, I, did, push, push. I, I did sales for a while, so I, I can relate to this guy. But he also, his wife was like really pushy in his yeah. career. Yeah. And, you know, he even asked her, you know, hey, if I quit and I go to do something that I really like, that's really me, you know, and she's, she wants nothing to do with that. In fact, right. isn't it, I think at the end that pushes him over the edge is he calls her mm -hmm. and tells her that he quit and she just hangs up on him. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, don't bother coming home. Yeah. <laughs> But, yeah, it, it's a downer, uh, you know, ending, but it is kind of weird that, you know, Willoughby, the stop that he was going to dream about was actually the mortuary that picked him up. You know, Larry, I had not watched this in years, and I mm -hmm. think I had mixed it up with another episode that was much happier. Um, <laughs> <laughs> honestly, yeah, I, episode, yeah. I, I think I mixed it up with another episode where the guy wound up going and living in some little happy village or whatever. And uh, I watched this one yesterday, and, and I actually sat there. I kind of felt like somebody had punched the air out of me. Right. Uh, and, yeah, the guy, the, the big boss who almost looked like the kingpin, you know, he was a big, <laughs> fat dude with a bald head. Push, 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 push. And the poor guy, you could just see him about ready to have a heart attack, you know. The And he's, yeah, he's, like, got all the phones. And I kept thinking – you know, oh, my God, this guy is so stressed out, but he didn't have any computer or Internet or instant messaging or whatever. You know, he didn't have anything we have today. Abacus or but something. He, right. It was like <laughs> they, they, they still had all this pressure, you know. So, this, again, it's that thing of Twilight Zone is still hitting on themes mm -hmm. that we're still feeling today. Right. And just hearing you talk about how you ride the train to work. So you're feeling the same thing that this guy was feeling back in the, you know, 1960, right? All right. 
And um, yeah, and the wife, the horrible feeling, I was feeling so bad for him through the whole thing because he had no one to turn to. When he's in the meeting with the boss and all of his colleagues are there, they won't look at him. Nobody says a word. He's so isolated in his you know, his pain, you know, nobody's there to help him. And then at the end, he winds up dying. It was like, oh, my God. I know. know. Well, it's kind of the universal theme because, like, we all have jobs and we work them all day long. And then the podcast is kind of our Willoughby. Planet 8, Planet 8, here we go. Get off the train at Planet 8. That we could return from. Yeah. But no, everybody has, you know, they have, like, their release, you know, but... Yeah. I guess his release was basically destined yeah. to be suicide. Are we podcasting, you know? Bob? What's that? Are we podcasting? I believe so. <laughs> we may all end up dead at the end of the episode, but. <laughs> I'll tell you one of the things that um, I kind of appreciate Twilight Zone, very few TV shows at the time would would be ballsy enough to have a non-happy ending um you know this episode is a great example uh the howling man you know they're the the maid (laughs) lets the devil out i mean you know it's it's not all happy and and wrapped up at the end of the show these were cautionary tales um that still i think you know we've talked about are relevant today so (laughs) Uh, to continue the the downer episodes um the one I uh, think has has had a, a lot of impact, and it's a popular one, but I still think it's a good one, um, is The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Yes. So, oh, yeah. you know, everybody's in this nice little happy neighborhood. And I've noticed it. I've watched so many episodes now. They've used this same – it must be on a back – or it was on a back lot somewhere because that same neighborhood appears in like at least eight episodes that I've seen now. Um, but you know, it's a nice day. Everybody's out. People are washing their cars. The kids are playing in the street and everything. And then something goes over. It's like, is it a meteor? What was that? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all kind of freaked out. And then things start happening on the street. You know, uh, there's weird electrical activity. You know, people's uh, cars start and stop and do strange things. And so everybody starts kind of freaking out. And this kid suddenly says oh this is just like this story i read you know where you know things the power goes on and off and strange things happen and it's the aliens you know they're going to take over but they always plant one alien family amongst the people and (laughs) so then everybody starts becoming paranoid and as day turns to night uh things start spiraling downwards Uh, People start accusing one another of being not, you know, one of us, right? So it becomes... You are not of the body. Yes, you're... (laughs) Right, it's the red hour. Um, So it's that paranoia and that mistrust. And, uh, you know, they start turning against each other. And uh, so it, it becomes just about uh, like a mob mentality. Well, it is a mob mentality. And finally, somebody shoots somebody else. There's a guy who had gone over to another uh, street to help somebody out. And as he's walking back through the shadows, somebody freaks out and shoots him. And, uh, you know, at this point, it's like they all like start to turn on each other and they pull back up to a hill and you see there's a spaceship 
mm-hmm. and there's two aliens, but they look basically humanoid. And uh, they start talking to each other and they say, well, what, you know, one guy says, okay, so what do we do now? And he's like, nothing. We really don't have to do anything. They just do it to each other. Right. You know, we don't have to do anything at all. We just turn the power on and off and a couple of other things and they take care of themselves. And, you know, and then he says, and there's all these other Maple Streets and they get in their ship and take off. Right. Every and, city uh, has a Maple Street. Right. And... <laughs> You know, it's another one of those ones where it just feels like, obviously, you know, the, what they're talking about is not aliens, but just just us. And it, when I kind of, I don't want to get too political here, but when I look at what's going on right now, you can see how easily it is, easily people become divided, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, Twilight Zone is very... You could say they're prophetic, or you could just say people don't change very much. <laughs> and right. you know, yeah, I don't. I, I mean, think people just don't change because back then you had McCarthyism, right? Which is kind of basically what this was based on. And so, oh, he's a communist. I know it. You know, he's got radio equipment in his basement. He must be communist. He's communicating with Russia or whatever. It's like. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I was thinking you could say, well, look, the Russians are meddling with the elections and you just do it once or twice and then we'll take off with it. And it it, it just goes to show, yeah, like Karen said, as much as we think we've changed and kind of grown up as a species, our base instincts and reactions are kind of the same. Well, it's like today, it's like a lot of, you know, you can say Russia or you can say whatever, you know, whoever you want to point at. But they sit there and they put little seeds into social media and then they grow as people spread them around. And, you know, all you have to do is just introduce an idea, you know, that that basically Mm -hmm. triggers people and they'll run with it themselves and talk about it like it's gospel and. Yeah, right. it just explodes and divides, and yeah, I mean it's very easy to conquer a country now without firing a shot. Well, we we need to have more positive vibes out on the interwebs, and that's why people need to spread the Planet Eight gospel. <laughs> Share this podcast far and wide. Now the one, I'm, I'm the gonna one. plant. I'm gonna plant one of those Planet Eight seeds on social media somewhere. <laughs> the, the one fun thing I think from this episode is that the idea uh, for Kodos and Kang on the Simpsons. Oh yeah. Uh, came came out of <laughs> <Right>. this episode. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, otherwise, yeah, another pretty grim episode. One of the things that really sticks out with me too is how people felt the need to try and defend themselves. You know. Well, so-and-so has a short wave radio. Uh, who are you talking to? Oh, oh yeah, well, uh, uh, he's been uh, not sleeping at night, and he's up at 2 in the morning. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, goes, that's the funny thing, right? So the one woman is like, well, you know, sometimes I get up and I look out and, you know, so-and-so standing out in his yard looking at the start. Well, what are you doing getting up at night? Yeah. You know, and it's just like they're all pointing the finger at each other. But yeah, you know, there's so many things that are just innocent actions that can get twisted, right? And yeah, uh, yeah it's really funny how they all find some fault with the other person. It's uh, it's funny, Lieutenant Jasmine. She uh, her day job is a preschool teacher, 
And she's like, that's exactly how it is at school. Billy pulled down his pants. Susie kicked off her shoe. And it's like a, a round robin of, of just, you know, telling and defending huh? yourself. Well, it's like that old game where it's like you, you get in a circle and it's like the first person says one thing and then they, they pass it along. And by the time it gets all the way back, it's a totally different story. Yeah. Telephone, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, those are good ones. So let me see. I think we're back to I think we're back to me, eh? Yep. And I, I had to... your howling man and raise you. And raise you a living doll. Ah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's a classic episode with Taki Tina and, uh, and Telly Savalas, who does a great job. Uh, Plays against type. Yeah. I mean, uh, he's he's I, playing the stepfather of a little girl named Christy. And uh, now I was reading a background, and I don't know if this really came out in the episode, but supposedly he's basically uh, infertile. He can't have kids of his own. Right there, there's actually a line where he says, "Oh, we can't have kids," and so that's why you're saying blah blah blah. That's blah. it. Yeah. Oh. So, uh, so basically, he married this woman who had a daughter, but you know he's so upset about being infertile that he kind of takes it out on the little girl all the time. Well, he's just basically an a hole in general. Well, like, that too. <laughs> but you know. Um, so yeah. So anyway, Ooh. his and you know what the wife's name is? <laughs> this is kind of a side note. The wife's name is Annabelle. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, so I'm wondering if that has anything to do with the current series like of homage. movies of, of an evil doll named I, Annabelle. But anyway. I never thought about that. No. So, uh, so anyway, Annabelle gives Christy this doll named Talkie Tina. And her sort of, every time you pull her string, she'll say, you know, I'm Talkie Tina and I love you. Well. And who voices Talking Tina? Yeah, uh, June Foray. Yes, sir. Oh. Yeah, mm-hmm. Rocky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, Rocky. And uh, do you know what other voice she did? She uh, did the voice for Chatty Cathy, the Chatty Cathy uh, doll oh, from Chatty from Cathy. Mattel. There was a doll out back then called Chatty Cathy from Mattel, and uh, June Foray did the voice. So they got her to do the voice for Taki Tina. I was going to say she's Witch Hazel for the Bugs Bunny Warner Brothers. Well, she did a lot of the female voices in the Looney Tunes that Mel Blanc couldn't do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. uh, Yeah, so she did Witch Hazel. Yeah, anyways. So so basically he ends up taking the doll from Christy. And uh, Christy runs upstairs crying and her mom goes up to console her. And of course, Tali Savalas is left in the room with Tonky Tina and that's where, you know, she opens her eyes and says, I'm Taki Tina, and I don't like you. <laughs> oh, man. When I was watching that with my daughter when she was young, and as soon as that happened, she was just like, <gasps> <laughs> but yeah, I was like, I don't like you. <laughs> so basically, you know, he's like, takes the doll, throws it in the garbage, you know, in the garage, and goes back into the house and the phone rings. Well, he, he puts like bricks or tools. No, or well, that, on yeah, that that's later. Garbage. But yeah, he's, he just okay. goes out, just throws in the garbage, and comes back in the house. Mm-hmm. And the phone rings, and he hears the voice. You know, I'm Taki Tina, and I'm going to kill you. Mm-hmm. 
So he runs out to the garage and finds the doll is missing from the garbage. So, you know, he's like blaming the, the and of course, you know, it's back upstairs with, with Christy. But he's blaming the manufacturer and Christy's mother. And he, uh, he's trying to, of course, explain, try to explain to himself how this thing is actually happening. So, uh, so he goes upstairs. He finds the doll with Christy. So he takes it. And she's like crying and pleading for him to leave it. Well, the uh, poor Christy. I mean, she's like, daddy, oh, yeah. daddy, I'm not your daddy. Yeah. yeah, I'm not your daddy. I'm like, Jesus. That's yeah. like so harsh. He is. Yeah, you know, no, he, he, is, he is ruthless. Like thousands of dollars of therapy. Right? <laughs> so he grabs the doll. He goes back to the garage. And then he tries tries to destroy this thing with a blowtorch and a circular saw, putting his head in a vice and just can't do it. So he finally throws it back in the garbage can, and that's when he puts this big, he like basically ties it into a burlap sack, throws it in the garbage, and puts a bunch of bricks on the top or cinder blocks or whatever, holds the top down. And so uh, you know his wife is like, she's upset. Obviously, she's threatening to leave him. And, uh, you know, and take Christy and all that. So in order to keep her from leaving, he goes and gets the doll and gives it back to Christy. Well, later that night, while he's in bed, he hears noises. So he goes to Christy's room and she's in bed asleep, but the doll is gone. So he goes down the stairs and ends up tripping on the doll, which was lying on the stairs and basically breaking his neck at the bottom of the stairs. And so the wife, she runs out. She hears all the commotion. She runs out and sees him laying dead at the bottom of the stairs with the doll next to him. She picks up the doll, and the doll says, I'm Taki Tina, and you'd better be nice to me. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. I have, the, uh, I have a replica. I can't remember the name of the company. Of the... Uh, napkin stand from uh, what's the Bill Shatner episode with the little devil on top? Nick of Time. Nick of Time. Uh, I have it up in the Tiki Barn. Uh, we're watch- yeah, I'm watching these episodes and Jazz is like, oh my god, you have that in the Tiki Barn. I look at her and I'm like, and don't ever put a penny in it. <laughs> it's not. And she's like, oh, shut up. Yeah. I'm like, okay, so you know, if, if you're okay with that, I'm going to get a talking Tina doll and put it up here in the man cave she's like oh no we're not gonna do that <laughs> i actually found one i was down at monster palooza and i was like down at uh, one of the shops on, in burbank and i found a talkie tina and i yeah there's i basically company. gave it to my daughter for christmas but oh that's cool there's a company that put out some of these twilight zone uh, replicas and talking tina was i think entertainment earth yeah um sold them for a while but yeah, no, I was. It's definitely a standout episode. You know, whenever it would come on the Twilight Zone marathons, you know, my daughter and I'd be calling each other, texting, "Hey, Talkie Tina's coming on." Yeah. But uh, it's so creepy. I can't. I can't even. I don't think I can even watch it anymore because the doll stuff is so creepy. But it is classic. And Telly Savalas, I mean, uh, you know, he's another he, one of those great actors that you see on Twilight Zone. He, and he yeah. plays oh, an he ass really well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, he was, he's one of the worst. I mean, oh. well, it's funny. Cause like a lot of people think of him from Kojak, but he played bad guys in a lot of like, he films, played Blofeld like, in, uh, on her Majesty's secret service. I was thinking he was on horror express. I was just thinking horror express. Right. Yeah. 
And uh, what was it? Was it Dirty Dozen where he was? I think he was a You're bad right. guy too. And, he, and yeah. like he just he would he was really good at that. Yeah, you this know? was just uh, I hated that role, but he played it so well. Oh yeah, no, yeah, he definitely did good. And, you know, and all the actors in this one did particularly True. well. Well, next episode I'm going to bring up is one of my personal favorites, and um, it's it's uh, Hocus Pocus and Frisbee. <laughs> and uh, Mr. Frisbee is a teller of tall tales, and this takes place, you know, back in the olden times. He has a little general store, and he has all these friends and and whatnot gather around and listen to him just pontificate on you know things that he's done and you know they'll say something like well i wonder if it's gonna rain and he's like, well i was a meteorologist once <laughs> and i could tell you by the feeling in my hip whether or not you know it's gonna rain or and there's this old timer and i, I should have looked up his name uh but he is just hilarious the way that he acts and reacts oh you're talking about he, he if he's talking he's lying i'll tell you that much <laughs> And the guy who was Floyd the Barber was in that, yeah. too. Yes, he was. He was. Um, I'm sure there were other well-known actors. It, it was just so funny to hear him, to, you know, and, and he really believed, well, I, you know, just sit down and I'll tell you what's going on. But his friends don't anyway. really, they don't really buy it. Right. No. Yeah. No, they don't buy it. They, they, they're just entertained by how uh, how he buys it and tries to sell it, I guess. So this car drives up, these well-dressed men are in there, and he's telling them all this stuff about how he was a mathematician and a scientist, and you know, once upon a time he did this, that, and he's pumping gas for them. And it doesn't occur to them at all that he's like, at a general store pumping gas, how could he be this great of a person? But they think he's someone of great importance to this world, and um, they invite him to come visit them. You know, they're, they're only in town for a short time, they say. And you know, they drive off, and he's sitting there, out in front of his shop, setting stuff up there, putting things away, and he gets whisked away. And it's so funny, you could see the rig on him. He's wearing these overhauls, and the overhauls kind of like tuck up a little bit. Anyway, it, it, it's little things like that that catch my eye and make something memorable. Anyway, he flies He goes off. like, wee! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. He, uh, winds up in their spaceship and they're going to take him to their planet because of his great knowledge and intellect. And he, he's like, no, I can't, you know, I'm not. And he punches them and their face uh, mask breaks and it, it shows their alien faces, their true faces. And he kind of freaks out a little. He's resolved to his fate and he sits there in the little spaceship prison cell and he starts playing his harmonica and, and the aliens, you know, I was talking about sound bites. There are some visuals and you guys can't see this on the podcast, but the alien kind of puts up his hand over his ear and the other hand is like wide open and, and he's just kind of frozen while he's playing the harmonica. It's, it's just a weird stance. And all the other aliens take the same pose. So I, I guess they shared that uh, pose or whatever when they're in pain. Anyway, long story short, um, they realize that he has this uh, death device. I can't remember what they call it. It wasn't a death ray, but it was something like death ray. Yeah. And they let him go because, uh, you know, he's so smart and so superior to them. They dare not invade the earth. 
So he gets back to the shop and his friends, it was his birthday or something, they gave him a present and he opens it up and basically it's a trophy and I says something to the effect, you know, greatest tall tale or BSer out there. And he's like, well, oh, no, let me tell you guys what happened. I got whisked away to the spaceship and the old guy's like, ooh, he's going to be a whopper today. Good. <laughs> and, you know, Rod gives us the cautionary ending of, you know, tall tales and what can happen but uh this was just a fun episode nothing really you know nobody dies no it's not a downer um it, it just it, it kind of speaks to human nature you know every once in a while we like to bend the truth every once in a while we like to hear a, a good story you know be it at a campfire or at a party or something like that and frisbee all he wanted to do was entertain his friends and um, and they all knew it, and and they you know it wasn't meant to hurt anyone or, or anything like that. It was just a good time had, and um, yeah, I I appreciated that episode a lot for that. Yeah, that was a very whimsical episode, and uh, it, it was interesting because I watched it and I was like, I can totally see like why Larry enjoyed this, knowing knowing you so well. And I also, do love to. <laughs> uh, knowing how you enjoy embellishing things sometimes, I thought, oh, wow, yeah. I could totally see Larry putting himself into this story. So that was a lot of fun. I, I Yeah, that, that is a big reason behind it. You know, to this day, Karen and I have known each other. Known each other better 20, than two score and... 26... 27 no, it, years? Dude, it's more than 30 years now. Is it more than 30? So yeah. to this day, I, I, I'll have a little fun and I'll pull her leg. And I'll be like, no, no, I'm just kidding. And she's like, jeez, oh, you still get me after all these years. I'm still very, very gullible, which <laughs> I've gotten a lot better because now I pretty much I'm like waiting for it. I'm kind of like, OK. Is it? Let me think about this. Does Here it comes. This is going to be a whopper. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and not to brag, but I was telling Jasmine, you know, we had been dating for a couple of years and we got married. And she's like, oh, no, you, you can't fool me. You can't. I'm like, not only am I going to fool you, I'm going to tell you before I fool you and after I fool you so that you can experience the full effect. She's like, no, no, no. BS, BS. And uh, we were out. Uh, shopping at the mall and she's like I'll hold the parking ticket she lost the parking ticket and so I'm like well great now it's going to be it said $100 on the sign we got to go to the office and pay $100 to get a replacement ticket great now we're not going to be able to buy yeah I made this whole thing and we get there and I give the guy like a dollar to replace the ticket she's like it only cost a dollar I'm like yeah gotcha Ooh, she was fit to be tied <laughs> I let that drag on a little too long, probably like a half hour more than it needed to be. But there you go. anyway, I digress. But yeah, no, but the guy who played Frisbee, though, was yes, Andy sir. Devine. Oh, yeah. He was like an old character actor in a lot of Western films and things. A lot of and Westerns. He's great. I, I love that guy. People may remember his voice. So he did the voice of Friar Tuck in the Disney Robin Hood movie. Oh. The cartoon. But no, he had definitely had that distinctive voice, you know. Mm -hmm. Oodalali, oodalali, golly, what a day. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, who's up next? I believe it's Karen. All righty. 
Well, we'll go back to doom and gloom. <laughs> <laughs> Enough of this fun. Just, yeah. you know. Enough of this fluff. Go back to the hardcore Twilight Let's Zone. Let's get serious I now. got a episode called The Old Man in the Cave. Old Man in the Cave. Sorry, what'd you say there? I'm sitting in my cave here after the nuclear war. <laughs> so, yeah, this one is another post-apocalyptic Twilight Zone. You know, it was Cold War times, so mm-hmm. had a lot of these episodes that dealt with that fear of, oh, no, bombs are going to be dropped. What are we going to do? So right. this one took place, supposed to be 10 years after uh, the bomb, and uh, there's this group of people living, you know, somewhere, presumably in the, it was the United States in some little town, and uh, uh, there's one guy who sort of... Uh, is a leader, but he goes up to this cave and he talks to what he says is the old man in the cave. The old man in the cave basically right. gives all the people the knowledge they need to survive. He tells them where to plant crops, mm-hmm. what food is safe to eat, like canned food. They find all this canned food and a guy goes up, talks to the old man in the cave and he comes back and he says, well, the old man in the cave says that that canned food is no good it's radioactive we can't eat it and they're like oh okay you know they're and they're they're all very uh beaten down people they're right. just very hang, yeah they're hanging on by a thread so one day in comes this jeep with these four soldiers led by a uh, lieutenant french who's played by james coburn mm-hmm. so this is a, again another one of these actors that we right. all know really well but you know at the beginning of his career young guy and he is a really um, kind of cocky, jerky guy, and he starts saying, "Wait a minute, you know what's going on here? What are you people doing?" And he's like, "This old man in the cave. What are you, what are you guys talking about? This is ridiculous. You've got all these supplies and other things." So, eventually, he and his he and his soldiers wind up going up. There's a like a metal door. They they blow down the door. He leads the the townspeople in a revolt they go in to go after the old man in the cave and lo and behold what do they find but a computer the m5 yes m5 <laughs> unit and unfortunately they don't have captain kirk there to <laughs> you know talk the computer into destroying itself so instead of you know saying oh maybe we can use the computer no they just go and like a bunch of primitives they they demolish it um they like throw rocks then, at it right yeah, they like throw rocks, they tip it over, and then they stomp on it and stuff. And then they go back to the town, and they, they all party. They eat all the, the food and everything, and then, you know, cut to the next scene is daytime, and they're all basically dead, lying dead on the ground. And the one guy, the, the guy that was the uh, uh, de facto leader, he had, you know, stayed out of it all. He just walks past them all as they're all laying dead on the ground and walks off and you know I, I don't know it was I had really mixed feelings watching that one I mean it's it's super yeah. pessimistic right uh, on one hand it's almost like well is it telling us that we should sort of blindly follow authority uh, you know you could almost look at the computer as like this you know this authority figure that nobody sees or or knows that's just dispensing information maybe it's a story about faith you know that the computer has always told them the right things to do they they never were led astray and then this 
Coburn comes in, he's almost like Satan in the Garden of Eden, right? You know, he's like, hey, don't listen to this. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I had a lot of mixed feelings about this one, but I always, it feels very, I don't know, visceral to me. It's just really stirring to see all those people dead on the ground afterwards. You know, some people just need to be led. Well, I I mean, I think, yeah, I guess I think of my grandfather. He never steered me wrong, whether... I mean, that man taught me how to walk, taught me how to talk, drive, um, fishing and, and everything. Never steered me wrong. And the funny thing is, you know, as you grow older, he was never wrong in his advice. <laughs> and, you know, in the immortal words of Captain Kirk, we learn by doing. Um, but if there's a little shortcut that'll save me just a little bit of heartburn or pain, I'll take it. You know, the man in the cave kept them alive for how many years? Ten years. You know, and James Colburn comes in and within a week, less than a week. Well, and maybe it's dead. something about, uh, yeah, about, you know, sticking with what you what you have, right? Like you you haven't made a pact with somebody or, or, right? It's like, oh, yeah, this guy comes in and tempts you with, you know, the easy route or whatever. But yeah, it's, it was an interesting, interesting episode and, and just so such a downer, you know, again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so many of these episodes watching them, I realized like, wow, you know, they didn't pull punches. They didn't manufacture yeah. a happy ending. There were so many that were. Tale. Yeah, they were really downer endings. All right, Bob, give us something happy. <laughs> <laughs> I have two left and I don't think either one is really happy but oh great I'm gonna go with the hitchhiker mm. which I always loved uh, there's this 27 year old woman named Nan Adams and she's driving across the country from New York to Los Angeles and while driving on route 11 through Pennsylvania she loses control basically her tire blows out she loses control winds up in a ditch and so she calls a mechanic to come and change her tire and fix her wheel and all that uh he tells her he's surprised that she survived uh, someone should be calling a hearse instead of a mechanic but she follows him back to you know he gets her car running she follows him back to the gas station and while there she sees this unassuming man on the side of the road hitchhiking doesn't really think much about it But as the episode goes on, she keeps seeing him wherever she goes. And he's always trying to hitch a ride. So at one point, her car even gets stuck on the railroad tracks. And he's standing there. She's like frantically trying to start the car. A train's coming. And he just stands there looking at her. She finally backs the car up. The train whizzes by. And as soon as it's passed, he's gone. So... uh, she ends up taking a, finally taking a detour through New Mexico, only to be stranded when she runs out of gas. Mm. So she walks to this gas station uh, late at night, and of course the person owning the gas station refuses to help her because it's like 11, 12 o'clock at night. So a sailor who's on basically returning from leave, he passes by, sees her, and he convinces the uh, owner of the gas station to give her gas. And then she, wanting to basically have a bodyguard, tells him she'll take him all the way into his port in San Diego if he rides with her, you know, through the night. So along the way, she sees a hitchhiker again and twice, like, swerves, tries to run him over, 
And of course, the sailor doesn't see him. So she, he thinks she's crazy and he ends up like bolting, like, I'm out of here, lady. You know, you're on your own. So she gets to Arizona and she finds a payphone and calls her mother. So this woman answers and says that Mrs. Adams is in the hospital after suffering a nervous breakdown because of her daughter dying in a car crash six days earlier in Pennsylvania. <gasps> boom, 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 boom. So she realizes that she never survived that car crash. So she returns to her car. She looks in the rearview mirror, and there's the hitchhiker sitting in her back seat. And, of course, he says, I believe you're going my way. <laughs> and uh, basically, he's death. He's waiting for her to accept the fact that she's dead and go off with him. But um, I just think, you know, he doesn't, that's like his only line in the whole thing. Yeah. But he's got this perfect deadpan expression as he sits there hitchhiking on the side of the road and all these different scenes and, you know, just this unassuming guy. But the guy who played the hitchhiker, though, I found this interesting, was Leonard Strong. Now, Leonard Strong, back in the 40s, when they used to take Caucasian people and put Asian makeup on them whenever they had, like, Asian people in a movie, he was kind of, like, pegged for those roles. He played a bunch of roles of, uh, of Asian Americans or just Asians in huh. the 40s and into the early 50s. But that culminated in his role as the villain, the craw in Get Smart. Oh, my God. <laughs> the claw? That's no, the claw, the claw. That is some trivia. But, uh, no, I thought this was a great episode just because it's almost like the whole thing, you think this hitchhiker is stalking her, and, you know, he's going to do something bad when he catches her. But no, he's basically just waiting for her to accept her fate. Mm-hmm. I wonder if he's a representation of the Grim Reaper. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely, yeah. He is death rather yeah. than a soul that's going with her. Oh, yeah. He, yeah, he's, yeah, the, yeah so. he's there to escort her off into the afterlife. But uh, yeah. Sort of like the Robert Redford I was thinking, character, yeah, too, yeah. right? Right. We see that more than once in Twilight Zone. But just, you know, you always see him, you know, sometimes it's just she's going down the road and you see a flash of him go by. Or sometimes, you know, she stopped somewhere and there he is, you know, playing his day, just standing there. But obviously no one else sees him. It was interesting. I looked this up and read that because I was kind of interested who wrote each episode. And... um, this was originally a radio play that they adapted for uh, Twilight Zone. Mm. And I, I could kind of see how it would make sense that um, it was a radio play because there's so much narration um, in the episode where you hear Nan, Nan's voice talking about, I kept going down the road and I oh, yeah. did this and I did that. So, but it works. I mean, it worked, totally works as an episode. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I you noticed that did it remind you at all of um and I haven't seen this movie in ages but Carnival of Souls a little bit Oh yeah Carnival that's like of one of Souls, my favorite yeah. movies yeah And yeah, yeah yeah she she basically was in a car crash at the beginning is supposedly the only survivor <laughs> and goes yeah. through the whole movie until right. she finally finds out at the end spoiler alert Yeah so I don't know it just kind of struck me yeah, that is a good, good uh, point. Definitely. Keeping with the, uh, the bomb going off, um, 
Peter Sellers did a movie. Oh, no, sorry, wrong podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, kids. I, I got an hour's worth of podcasting in me, and then I get giddy. So this is our uh, Twilight <laughs> Zony episode. We're going over an hour. Um, uh, actually, The Shelter is the next episode that I'm going to oh, yeah. put out there. Uh, again, another cautionary tale. And, you know, there there is no right or wrong position to take uh, long story short there's this uh, group of friends having dinner celebrating someone's birthday or anniversary or something the children are there the families uh, the radio has an alert uh, you know there's a bomb coming everybody run to your homes your shelters your basements whatever and the uh, the doctor whose uh, birthday they're celebrating tells his family come on let's go down to the bomb shelter it's fully stocked. We got water and, and all this kind of, you know, survival and supplies. And the other neighbors go to their homes, but then they come back knocking on the door, asking for access to the room. They didn't build a shelter for themselves. Uh, they, you know, don't have basements. Don't. And and the doctor, their friend is like, I'm sorry, I only have enough provisions for my family. And they're like, but we're friends and we have children and. One of the uh, one of the families, the actor, I, I can't think of his name, but he's a well-known Hispanic actor at the time. And, and a comment is made like, well, you're not even from here, you know. Yeah, you're not a real American, I think. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it kind of cuts. It's like, wow. Um, anyway, they they get a battering ram and they, they break down one of the doors and then the radio announcer comes on and says, oh, whoops. My mistake. It was, you know, a what, you know, what a weather balloon. False alarm. Yeah, and they all kind of like, oh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll help you pay for the door. Uh, you know, we're, yeah, we're sorry. We, yeah, and it's like, how do you come back from something like that? And I think the 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 thing that I was uh, the point I was thinking is that was the was the doctor wrong in not opening the door and letting his friends in, or was he right in not opening the door? And letting his friends in, you know, it, and it, it always goes back to Star Trek for me. The needs of the many outweighs the needs of the few or the one or do the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the. Well, many? I mean, the thing is, I mean, you know, he was prepared and he took all that time to prepare. So it's not really his fault that no one else was prepared. But now they're being all nice to him for just in case the next time comes up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, and it, it, it's, again, it's like, look how quickly they turned on each other. Yeah. And that's what was so scary. It was just like the, the Maple Street episode, right? Mm -hmm. When everybody gets in, in jeopardy, all of a sudden they turn on each other and they find yeah. things. Yeah, they find things in each other to point out and criticize and turn on. Like, well, this is why, I, you know, I'm I'm better than you. And, yeah. you know, and it was you know, really ugly, but then again, you could totally see the same thing happening today. So it, yeah, that, I watched that one and it was on my, it was on my long list. It didn't get on my <laughs> short list, but I was glad you included it. Cause I, that was another one when I watched it, I thought, wow, this is really, um, really hits home. It really is effective. You know, you could show that to a group of people who'd never seen twilight zone, and I, I think it would have an impact. Definitely. 
Well, well, I mean, every, everybody feels that, you know, they're a priority. Yeah. yeah above for and sure. ab- above and beyond everyone else. So Yeah, I you know, I and I could talk about this for hours on end. I mean, I I hear what you're saying. He took the time and the money and the patience to prepare everything to, you know, it's like the little red hen. Well, and he only has enough room and enough supplies for three people in there. So if you let everybody in there, it's not going to work, right? Right. Yeah, well, you have so, to make a choice because either they're going to die or you're going to die. Well, right. plus, like, how, how big is this shelter, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. That's the other thing, too. That's the I mean, thing. Is there physically room for all these people? You know, can you take the kids instead of the adults? I mean, when do you start making you know, hard choices? Mm-hmm. Who gets the ventilator? Who doesn't get the ventilator? I mean, K- Kids don't know how to ration stuff, though. It's, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, let's uh, let's get into a brighter, happier. Uh, Are you really expecting that from me? No, I know you're listening ahead of time. I'm just having fun. Gotcha. Is this is this <laughs> the last? Crispy. Is this the last episode, or are we going past the hour mark? Are we going to do? Well, let's round? yeah, let's let's finish it up because I think we each have one episode left, right? Walker. Okay then. I, I believe, I believe. Okay. All right. That takes us to you, Karen. Well, my selection is, I realized uh, when we were discussing it, very influenced by where I currently live, which is in the <laughs> southwest desert. <laughs> um, so I, I have chosen an episode called The Midnight Sun. And uh, in this episode, we, we join a couple of women in a, a New York apartment building and uh, it's very, very hot. So we get a couple of shots of a thermometer going up into like 100 plus degrees. And we find out that uh, the Earth, something has happened to knock it off its orbit. And we're getting closer to the sun. And within about three weeks to a month, uh, the planet's going to be uninhabitable because the heat, the temperature is going to be so high. We're just all going to basically fry. Mm. Uh, and so uh, in the course of the episode, a lot of different things happen uh, you know, there's uh, one of the women is a painter and we see her painting these scenes of, you know, heat and all this other stuff. There's a guy that tries to break in and rob them, but then he decides not to rob them because, you know, oh, the humanity and all this other stuff. But it's mostly um, I'd say this episode is less intellectual and most more on an emotional level where you just feel the heat and the suffering Mm -hmm. and it keeps building and building and then finally there's a scene and it towards the end it stops and you realize that all of a sudden we're in this apart the same apartment building but it's freezing and it turns out one of the women was actually ill she was sick and she was in a uh, feverish state and she had hallucinated this whole thing where they were you know going towards the sun um, and her fever is finally broke. But what actually is going on is that the Earth has broken out of its orbit, but it's going the other way and it's going away from the sun and everything's freezing. And with, right. within three weeks, we're all going to freeze to death. So that was the typical Twilight Zone twist. Um, and yeah, I, I felt it was really well acted. Um, of course, being an idiot, I didn't look up the actress's name, but uh, I think I think it may have been... Uh, I want to say uh, Suzanne Woodward, 
I'm not sure, um, but a really well-known actress. Um, anyway, uh, really well done episode, and um, just one of those ones that you like remember later on because of the emotional uh, gut feeling, I guess, of it all. So, anyway, that was my pick uh, for number three. That was yeah. a very good, uh, like you said, very well acted. Yeah. Uh, it it basically that, took place in a room. You know, I was going to say, no, yeah, it was a bottle show. You know, it was it was basically a room and then the hallway outside the apartment. And that was it. Um, you know, just a, a basic set. But uh, what they did with it, you know. You could feel that temperature going up. And as somebody who currently in uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, we're, we're hitting those low 100s, I have an appreciation for that. So, Do you, do you have dreams of uh, living in Alaska? or the? <laughs> <laughs> I just dream of like a big walk-in freezer. That would be really nice. If I had a, like a big walk-in freezer, I could just go and sit in for like 20 minutes every day. That'd be really nice. Well, one thing about that episode is there's an intruder in the middle of it. Right, the guy breaks yeah, they, in. They hear him, you know, he basically broke in upstairs and he comes down and he, like, finds a jug of water in the fridge and he, like, guzzles it down and tosses the bottle and breaks it. And uh, you think he's, like, a total ass. But he actually turns out to be an okay guy because when he he sees her art and it reminds him of, of his wife's art and he tells them, like, his backstory, and then he ends up leaving. He apologizes, right. says he's sorry, and he leaves. Whereas, you know, a lot of people in that situation, they'd still stick around and rob the place or take advantage of the situation or something. Yeah, that was kind of unexpected. I thought for sure, you know, oh, he's going to do something terrible. But then, yeah, it was just one little glimpse of humanity that came through, right, yeah. um, in this terrible situation. It's kind of like he recovered from, you know, where he was. He mm -hmm. broke down or something. Uh, real quickly, Norma was played by Louise Nettleton. Mrs. Bronson was Betty Gard. Yeah. Well, I know I've seen I know I've seen Louise Nettleton in other things. She did a really good job. It was really convincing. She did. Yeah, they were they were really good. Okay, so. Back Coming to down to the final Chief. episodes. That's right. Mr. Bob. Well, you know, it's so hard. With all the episodes of Twilight Zone, and it's really hard to narrow them down to, you know, a handful. And I could have gone, you know, I tried to kind of steer clear of the really popular ones. So I decided to go with a game of pool. And uh, that was the main, the main reason I went with a game of pool is because I thought the acting was just so good in this one. And uh, basically, you've got Jesse Cardiff, who's a Chicago pool shark, and he's played by Jack Klugman. And so all his life, he's tried to be the best. He's tried to be the champion. He's tried for great to achieve greatness. And every time he achieves something, all he hears is about Fats Brown, this late pool pools champion who was always better. Anything he did someone would always come back at him and oh well Fats Brown he could do this you know better than that so frustrated he's in the pool hall by himself and he says he would he would give anything to play Fats Brown in a game of pool 
figures he can he can beat him and then he could be the best and so they cut to the hereafter where fats brown is at a pool table shooting pool in a big misty area you know a cloud whatever and uh, there's a page that comes out saying you know mr brown mr brown please report to such such pool hall and so he just picks up his cue and off he goes as towards the pool hall and he is played by jonathan winters oh yeah yeah you know, in, in a basically a serious role because you always think of jonathan winters as you know mork's son or whatever you know or mm-hmm. stand up you know he's always a comedian but you know he's pretty serious in this one so he goes and he peers the pool hall and he makes uh he makes jesse a wager basically wagering for his life he wins the pool game he gets to live he loses the pool game he dies so after a lot of hemming and hawing uh jesse finally accepts and you know they basically it's basically a half hour game of pool as they're doing whatever to each other playing all these little mind games and tricks and things to try to get each other to blow shots and you Mm -hmm. know finally at the very end Jack Cogman or Jesse gets the final shot and wins the game so he gets to live and he lives out his life as a pool shark but then when he dies he ends up taking Fat's place up in the hereafter and he's the one that has to go and play all these wannabe pool sharks <laughs> and yeah as Rod Sterling says at the end Fats has gone fishing it's basically a psychological thing between the two men trying to you know get under each other's skin and you know make them miss that shot or not you know be able to sink that sink that ball in the corner pocket but uh, it's you know like I say the, the main thing about this episode is definitely the acting between Jack Klugman and, and Jonathan Winters. Oh yeah, yeah. One of the rare moments where Jonathan Winters played like a serious role. And he yeah, yeah he he's an ass to <laughs> during a lot of it, and he's you know through a lot of it, he's trying to teach Jesse that you know hey you're you're basically spending your whole life in a pool hall. Yeah, you're missing sunsets, you're missing friendships, mm-hmm. you're missing marriage, you're missing all these things that you could be out doing and you're spending your entire life in a pool hall. Right, and careful what you wish for. Yeah, because now yeah. he's all eternity in the pool hall. Right. I guess until yeah. somebody beats him, but... I really like the way Jack Klugman played this character, too. He, you know, Everybody, most people know him from the television show The Odd Couple, but... Uh, this and I think for the love of Pip was the other episode. Uh, he's he's such a actor's actor, you know. He's he can play emotions very well. Well, you really feel yeah. for him. Yeah, you know, it, it really translated well through his performance. It's always interesting to see these guys that, um, like you said, you know, we see them on the Odd Couple, so we get this impression that. You know, always oh, a comedian or always oh, whatever, and then you see them in these very serious roles, and you see, oh wow, you know, they could really do drama well, just like Jonathan Winters, you know. Right. Well, I mean, you think about the Odd Couple, and Jack Klugman and Tony Randall were both pretty established actors, you know, serious actors before going into that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, as kids growing up, you know, you 
you're just used to seeing them maybe in one thing. I mean, we do our own mental typecasting, I suppose. You yeah. know, like, oh, oh, you know, Jim Neighbors is Gomer Pyle. It's or, Oscar. You know, yeah, Oscar. He's, oh, this guy is awesome. Oscar, you don't know Oscar, that they Oscar. had a whole career before that, you know. Right, right. So, you know, and I always think, you know, even though I'm, you know, my age now, I still think these people are all older than me. And then to see them when they're much younger is kind of startling at times it's like oh, now i'm how, so you know. old yeah it's like <laughs> yeah. You, you look it's like a, a jack klugman in a, in that episode and he was what he might have been in his you know i don't know 30s maybe early 40s or something but oh I, I, yeah yeah it's it's always interesting to see that but yeah great acting chops he went on to play quincy md or something mm-hmm. like that that's right, right. The detective yeah. doctor yeah, that's a good episode. Well, to finish off my list, I picked something. Uh, I think it's the only episode of Twilight Zone, I'm pretty sure, that almost half of it, well, not half, a little less than half, was shot um, as a silent film. And this was uh, Once Upon a Time. It starred Buster Keaton. Yes, that Buster Keaton. And Stanley Adams. Stanley Adams uh, was a character actor. He played a lot of roles on TV throughout his career. But most famously, he's known on Planet 8 as... Cyrano Jones. Cyrano Jones. Jones. That's right. The seller of triples. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, I'd love to give this spot. little lady a triple. <laughs> oh, we could do this all day. <laughs> um... He was perfect for the role, though, in the Twilight Zone. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Bob. That was my only comment. He was perfect for the role that he played in Twilight Zone. He he really, yeah, accentuated the the episode. And so uh, it starts off in uh, this uh, town back in the old, you know, Western days and uh, horses and a dirt road, hogs and chickens crossing the road. Um, Dogs and cats living together. <laughs> and Buster Keaton's character is commenting, and, and it'll show up as uh, text on the screen. You know, it's too noisy with all these uh, hogs and chickens, and he makes a comment, the price of beef, you know, is two cents a pound, that's highway robbery, and, you know, uh, just wishes he could be somewhere else. And uh, this professor that he works for, uh, created a time machine and it's this helmet fan dangled helmet you put on and type in you know the the coordinates and he does that and winds up in modern times uh same town but it has a uh, asphalt on the street and, and uh, police directing traffic he almost gets hit by a car and all the horns are beeping and it's an interesting trans transition from going from the silent screen era with the piano playing in the background, the piano, and um, then it's like modern times and all the hustle and bustle of crowds and people and cars and uh, jackhammers and, and he covers his ears it's like, oh my god, this is so noisy and um, he falls down and the helmet gets damaged um, through circumstances Stanley Adams finds him um doesn't believe him at first that he's from the past, sees the newspaper in his pocket, believes him. 
they uh, go to this repair shop, radio repair shop, to get the helmet fixed. And um, they get the helmet fixed. They go back in time. And it's Stanley Adams' character who can't stand the quietness and the serenity uh, of the time. You know, when he was in his time, he thought, oh, that would be so fantastic to go back in time and live that simple life. And it turns out that the life was too simple. There, he was used to the hustle and bustle and the push, push, push um, that his reality had. And so uh, Buster Keaton helps him go back in time. The overall story was funny. It was um, it was cool to see the, uh, uh, the like I said the transition from the um, silent era to the modern era. But again, it was a cautionary tale. Be careful what you wish for, because what you think you want isn't always what you need. Da-da-da-dum. There you go. You know, yeah. I thought I think one thing interesting in this episode too is the uh, the repairman who's repairing the oh, helmet. Yeah. Yes, good Jesse point. White, who later would become the Maytag repairman. Mm-hmm. The Maytag repairman, that's yeah. right. But I thought the helmet was great because it was like a barber pole and a bunch of sparklers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, basically. Uh, I, I could build I like me a this. time machine. I like this a lot more than I, I thought I was going to. I, I know I had seen it before, but I hadn't seen it in a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually watched it yesterday. And uh, I, I was really, I actually was laughing out loud <laughs> at certain segments. The one that really got me was when, uh, you know, Buster <laughs> Keaton's character loses his, he goes into the future with no pants on, for one thing. <laughs> and at one point, the modern policeman is like, what do you do with no pants? And so he just like runs off down the street. And then uh, he tries to steal some pants. Then the guy asks him to pay for him. He doesn't have any money. And then the policeman is after him again. So then he's walking in front of Stanley Adams, who is a rather stocky fellow. And the way they're walking in front of each other is is kind of hilarious uh, <laughs> to block the policeman. But then he kind of they do this thing where he lifts him up yeah. and plops him back down. I mean, you have to like see it. The, and the, he lands in the pants. Right. It, it was yeah. just like bizarre. It was a great slapstick. Um, you know, in this episode, uh, and it's not you know typical of what you think of for Twilight Zone, but yeah, uh, exactly. But yeah, really, really good stuff. Um, just yeah, really funny episode. Well, it was a fun episode. I, it's one of my all-time favorites. So that being said, let's get over to Mister No. No, it's going back to Karen. Anything whimsical? Bing, bam. Well, I sort of think this is whimsical, but, you know, <laughs> I maybe you won't. I don't know. Um, eat, eat, Mr. Kekos. Um, <laughs> so my, my final selection, there were so many, but I couldn't get past this episode. Um, the classic to serve man. Uh, it's just one. one of those ones when I think of Twilight Zone it always pops in my head because uh, you know part of it is that idea that you know we shouldn't fear the unknown but maybe sometimes we should I don't know you know and the Richard Keel alien is just so 
bizarre. You know, I think we've talked about this before, uh, not on this this episode. Like a kelamite or something. Right? What's that? Is the kelamite? Was that the canamite? Canamite. Yeah. And that bizarre expression that kind of half yeah, mouth, talk, mouth you know. kind of half open. And yeah, it's sort of like knows. a. Uh, <laughs> but, but his eyes move so that he'll be like. <laughs> Keep in mind, this just, is an audio podcast, so they have no idea what you were just doing. Yeah, yeah. If you could see Larry with his mouth hanging open, his eyes moving back and forth. Yeah, it's just a bizarre idea. You know, they came up with something that, again, is really memorable. Um, you know, you show somebody a picture of the alien, and it's, you know. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, it's a great concept, right? It's like, oh, these aliens come here. They they tell us they're going to take care of, you know, famine. They're going to provide us with energy and cure illnesses and all. It's like, oh my God, these people—they're incredible. What are they doing? It's fab- fabulous. And you know, people are maybe distrusting at first, but then after they do all these things, it's like, oh wow, it's great. Um, and of course, you know, they. they the guy leaves behind a book people get the book try to translate it you know after they're trying it's very difficult and in reality it's like how the heck would they translate this thing i don't know but they get the the title to serve man and oh my god they're here to serve us they want to serve us this is fantastic you know so the guy's doing the most of the work on the book decides he's gonna they're offering flights back to their planet well who wouldn't want to go back to their planet it sounds awesome (laughs) he's in line to get on the ship and then his colleague comes running up and utters the famous words it's a cookbook (laughs) don't get on the ship (laughs) right and then of course a great prologue he's he's on the ship and he throws the food away and the canamate yeah. comes in eat eat you know Mr. push push so push so. push it is the nourishment time right and, and it's a pretty one note episode you know I mean again it's the twist that makes it so memorable but uh, I mean it's, a, it's the perfect it's the perfect note though or the perfect twist because you know invariably whenever I show this episode to somebody to serve man I mean it's so obvious but no one ever gets it. And they're always surprised by that ending. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, it's, I didn't get it at first. I mean, to serve man, I'm like, that's a weird title for a book. And it, it, then, the, you know, it's a cookbook. It's like, oh, okay. Ah, yes. But yeah, I, I was kind of thinking that that would be a really hard episode like if you if you were showing Twilight Zone in France or in you know Italy or something, and you had to translate it, it's like it's all based on the double meaning of to serve man. Well, mm. you know, voulez-vous s'il vous plaît, mankind, ooh la la. Yeah, so you know, so other countries that might not have that type of double meaning for that phrase in their language. Yeah, you know, the whole episode would be like, well, I don't understand. You know, why do they That's, understand that? I, I, I could imagine Bob getting married to serve and to, uh, excuse me, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point, though. That's a valid point. How does, it, how does the twist work if the language doesn't, doesn't quite work? 
But uh, and those candidates were lying because everybody, you know, even the Soviet ambassador is like, ah, what do you want in return? What do you you just going to do all this stuff for us and you don't want anything? Oh no, we're just here, or as they would do. Oh no, yeah. we're just here to help you. You know, we're just like we're just well, here to help you. That's a valid question. Uh, yeah. So uh, anyway, just one of those ones that I think is uh, unforgettable. And, it is. Uh, it's a good one too. And it's yeah. definitely got that big sci-fi edge because a lot of these don't really, you know, they're not sci-fi. Twilight Zone did horror and thriller and sci-fi. They didn't. They weren't all strictly science fiction but this one's definitely some of them were comedy some of them mm-hmm. were fantasy i mean there yeah. were genies there were um yeah I, I, I mean the list goes on and on it's, it's just such a diverse series and that's why i think we're going to do more of these we were talking beforehand we'll do more episodes covering twilight zone i don't know if it'll be annual or maybe semi-annual it's a lot of fun whenever we run out of current ideas and Need some filler. <laughs> Let's do another Twilight Zone. Sheltered yeah. in place for how many months now? Cause yeah, because um, we all had a bunch on our lists, so we could have easily done. Yeah, I had like seven or eight and cut them down. When, when you guys listen to this out there uh, and you make comments, uh, either at uh, planet8podcast.com or over on the Twitter or Facebook let us know what some of your favorite episodes were. It would be interesting to see uh, and, and why. Um, if they um, kind of cross with some of the episodes we listed. And I know there's over 150 episodes, so God knows we didn't touch on any of the Burgess Meredith or Bill Shatner episodes. Of yeah, we only did like, what, a dozen? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that takes us into uh, this episode, Censor Sweep. And um, I, uh, I had trouble picking just one thing to cover and so I'm going to kind of go through the uh, three or four items that I have and none of these are new although you can find them on uh, the interwebs if uh, you want to go on any uh, you google it and I'm sure it'll send you over to whatever page first and foremost I wanted to uh, talk about the Twilight Zone Companion I, I have the second edition and this is by Mark Scott Zakri. Uh, And and this little book here, it's uh, almost 500 pages, about 460 pages, and it has such great background information, not just on the episodes, but uh, the people involved with The Twilight Zone, from Rod Serling to Buck uh, Houghton to uh, Richard Matheson, and, uh, you know, the list goes on and on, and it'll talk about some of the episodes, certain lighting, um, certain uh, effects that they tried to pull, uh, budget concerns, and, and all that good stuff. It's, it's very in-depth and a lot of fun. Second thing is the 40th anniversary collection of Twilight Zone. This is the original soundtrack recordings on a primitive uh, um, media called CD Disc. Um, what? Anyway, this is a four-disc yeah. <laughs> four set. And um, Bernard Herman. Uh, wrote a lot of uh, music for the show, uh, but there was Jerry Goldsmith. Um, the jazz theme one, jazz theme two. I love uh, the CDs, but those those jazz themes really stick out for me. Um, Nathan Van Cleve, Fred Steiner. Um, it's a four disc set. It covers a lot of the music from the from the program. 
I have a ancient relic from the 1960s, and this is uh, actually Rod Serling from the Twilight Zone. And um, his photos on the back of the book, I'll send Karen pictures of all of this stuff. But uh, this book covers episodes like The Mighty Casey, Escape Clause, Where Is Everybody, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, um, The Midnight Sun, and Mr. Dingle the Strong, uh, the Rip Van Winkle caper, a lot of good classic episodes. And it's interesting to see how much of what Rod wrote in the story translated into the script that they shot. Hmm. Um, I know in um, the uh, the pool game that we were talking about um, with Jack Klugman, um, a lot of takes were and retakes were done and they couldn't figure out the ending on that episode. You know, so they kept on re. I think there was like three different endings that they, you know, finally settled on the one that aired. A lot of fun to read that stuff. Um, last but not least is horror stories by Richard Matheson. Uh, of course, the cover has Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet. That was the Bill Shatner episode that uh, we were talking about before. But um, you know, he also did the. Um, Trilogy of Terror, uh, the the um, oh god, what's it called? The Zuni Warrior Zuni fetish, yeah, Zuni, Zuni fetish, fetish dolls, doll. right? Um, the short stories that he had here: Blood Sun, um, Witch War, Madhouse, Disappearing Act, um, as well as Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet. There's a great introduction by Stephen King in this book, also. Um, oh, Prey. That was the name of the Zuni fetish doll. Uh, anyway, those are my sensor sweeps uh, for this podcast. If you guys get a chance, check those out. Uh, like I said, they're readily available out on the interwebs. Um, we had a lot of fun with this Twilight Zone episode. It went over our standard time, but uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed it as well. It could have gone a lot, lot longer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, my friends. Take care. On that note, this will conclude this transmission from Planet 8. We would like to thank all of our intergalactic audience for listening. Be sure to head on over to our website at www.planet8podcast.blogspot.com where you can get more information on this episode's topic. For more conversation, find us on Twitter at Planet8Cast. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash planet8podcast. We want to thank you guys for tuning in each and every episode. We look forward to your input and opinions. Until next time, this is Planet8 signing off. End transmission. By George, he's got it. It is the end.
offer you a recipe. Combine one parked small-town neighborhood with a dash of missing trophy, and what you're left with is a gumbo fit only for a madman. A gumbo served almost exclusively in the twilight. Hey, who the hell is that? I bet he took the trophy. Get out! Where are you going, Sally? Want some of this? Hey, come back here.